This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. The Temple Master calls forth his disciple. A young Buddhist monk enters. He is dressed in ordinary robes, his hair unkempt, his breath smelling strongly of sake. This monk is Ikkyu Sojun. An illegitimate son of the emperor, he was exiled to a monastery, hoping that would keep him quiet, out of the way. It didn't. But now, despite his lifelong debauchery, all of the important noblemen, samurai, and monastery leaders he has famously maligned, mocked, and ridiculed mercilessly over the years, all of the wine he's drank, the brothels he's visited, all the lovers he's taken, despite this, Ikkyu's mastery over the intricate and complex philosophies of Zen Buddhism are undeniable. As a thinker, a scholar, and a debater, he is second to none. Ikkyu's master solemnly draws a scroll from his robe. It is a certificate of enlightenment, an official document bearing the seal of the master of the temple, confirming that Ikkyu Sujun has attained the rank of Bodhisattva, an enlightened one. It's a solemn ceremony that Zen monastery initiates dream of when they join the temple, an honor so difficult to achieve that very few of them will ever attain it. Zen master Ikkyo Sojun nods, takes the scroll from his master, glances at it quickly, and proceeds to set it on fire. Hello, and welcome back to Badass of the Week. My name is Ben Thompson, and with me as always is my co-host, Dr. Pat Larish. And Pat, we are doing something kind of different today. Yeah, this, this is something different and exciting. It's the first guest we've ever had on Badass of the Week, and we are um, we're very excited to have, to have him here. He is the host of uh, History on Fire, uh, and uh, this is Daniele Bolelli. Daniele, did I say your name correctly? Yeah, you nailed it. Oh. It's all good. Perfect. You got it right. Okay, great. And thank you so much for having me. It was the most stressful part of the entire thing. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, well, I make it, uh, I, when it comes to pronunciation, I think my policy is easy because I mispronounce every word in the English language so that people can tell when I'm mispronouncing a name because it's it comes, it comes with the brand. It's more or less expected. <laughs> I have the problem with every proper name we come across. I have to make Pat pronounce it for me because especially like the French names and the Viking ones, like oh, yeah. I can't. 
Yeah, I can't yeah. do them. <laughs> well, uh, Daily, thank you so much. You are the host of History on Fire, but also like a dozen other, you know, podcasts as well. Yeah, I've done. Uh, I can't stick to one thing ever. No, History on Fire. I've been at it for a while. It's now eight years that I'm uh, doing this podcast, and it's pretty research intensive. So that's one of the main things I focus my energy on. But yeah, I teach yeah. Uh, history in college. Uh, I host the Drunken Taoist podcast. I write books. So I'm always like too many things at once spinning plates constantly i understand yeah I, I get like that with history stuff where you know i like to try to jump around and i know you do too on yeah. your show where i like to jump around to different time periods and types of stories and things because you know if i read too much about one subject i i, I want to jump to something else i kind of get like oh, okay i i've, I've gone so far down this rabbit hole that I just need to find a new hole to dig myself. <laughs> well, and the thing is, there's so much out there that there are so many fantastic stories. There are so many brilliant characters in history. There's so much good stuff that I never really understood this desire to specialize in one thing and one thing only. When you know everything that happened on that street corner in Paris in 1527, but you don't know anything about the rest <laughs> of the stuff. I'm like, what's the point? You know, it's like, and don't get me wrong. I mean, and I understand that to become good at something, you need to put time and energy, not just skim the surface. But you can become pretty damn good at some topics while also exploring other topics. So I tend to be on your side. I'm more of a generalist than a specialist when it comes to history and life in general. Yeah. And and so, yeah. And so, you, you know, uh, Drunken Taoist has a little crossover with History on Fire, but not much. But I think actually today we're going to have an interesting crossover of both yeah. of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we are, uh, we're going to talk about, we're talking about doing different stories and, and finding new, uh, you know, new topics and new ideas and things. And today, uh, you know, we are going to be talking about something that is a bit of a departure for, for badass and also for history on fire, which is that we are going to be talking about a story that has very few uh, homicides. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> highly unusual. No, I, I mean, it's funny because so many of our stories, uh, the ones you guys cover, the ones I cover, I have a blast covering them. But then I start thinking about it. It's like, and here we go with another massacre, with another war, with another, you know, <laughs> like one of the revolving themes seem to be violence and killing and generally fairly awful things that I'm like, you know, as much as that's definitely a part of history, that cannot be all there is. And so I tend to be, I make a point sometimes to seek out, if nothing else for variety's sake, to seek out stories that are different, that are not just about uh, killing people in war and being tough. Um, and this story definitely fits the bill. This is as close as I can get to a happy story on History on Fire, where surprisingly the lead character doesn't kill anybody, but is still an incredible historical person. Well, it's kind of goes with what you were saying in, in the intro to your show on this guy. And uh, it's like, you know, these stories of, of massacres and battles and, you know, last stands and heroic cavalry charges. Those are awesome. And they're great to read about. And I love uh, watching the films of them and reading about them. But I don't want to live them. You know, yeah. I never want to be that mm -hmm. guy on the horse getting shot at charge of the light brigade you know <laughs> definitely and also i think it's like it comes there's a point where 
as much as you want to tell fun epic story, sometimes I think that we shouldn't equate fun and epic with bloody and violent all the time. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy my share of blood and violence, but you know, if it's not just the only <laughs> yeah. thing we cover, that would help. That would, and so it's, it's for me too. I mean, I do the exact same thing you do in that regard. It's like so many of my stories are ultra intense, and uh, they when you by the time you finish listening to them, you're like, oh, that was insane. That was uh, wild. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I would like sometime listeners to walk away with a smile, just happy, just feeling good. And, uh, and so this tale for today tend to fit the bill. This is uh, probably one of my favorites all time. Yeah. And how did you come upon this guy who we've kind of been defining in negative terms, as in we've got the absence of lots and lots of yeah. murdering and killing and whatever, but obviously he has things that are that he does or that he says that are of interest. So who is this guy? How did you come upon him originally? So the way I ran into this story is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Tom Robbins, the guy who wrote uh, Even Cowgirls Got the Blues, um, Still yeah. Life with mm -hmm. Woodpecker, all sort of really fun fiction the way. And, you know, I've always loved Tom Robbins as a writer. I got to meet him and he was a fantastic human being. And at the same time, I've also been always interested in Taoism, in Zen Buddhism and things like that. So one time I'm reading a Tom Robbins book, I think it was an interview with him, and they asked him about, uh, you know, if he had a time machine, where he would want to be. And he mentioned uh, early 1400s, Kyoto, uh, hanging out with this guy, EQ, his favorite Zen master. And I was like, come on, Zen master <laughs> that I don't know about, that Tom Robbins <laughs> love, I got to find out more about <laughs> this guy. And, you know, there's some stuff in the English language about him, not a ton. I had to use my university library privileges to dig up books that are no longer in print since a long time. And the more I read, the more I was just dying laughing because these guys is... Uh, it's so wild, so funny, so irreverent, anti-authority, hilarious. And, you know, he had everything going from for a character that I would dig as a centerpiece for a story I'd like to tell. Mm -hmm. And 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 there was enough to, to, you know, back up the story of his life. There was enough evidence to argue, OK, this is not just a two second thing where there's there's more than enough evidence. I was like, OK, I'm diving in. And the more I dove, the more I like the story. So it's think of it as um, if there was an X-rated version of Bugs Bunny was a Zen master, that would be the story <laughs> we play with today. Because uh, he's like this trickster figure. Okay, who... the mental image I'm getting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah. I mean, you kind of surprised me with this one because, you know, I mean, and, and that's the great thing, right? Stories come from all over the place. Inspiration for this stuff comes from everywhere. Of You'll be reading, for me, I'll be reading about one character and for one story I'm working on, and somebody else will pop up and be like, whoa, who is this guy? Wait, 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 wait I never heard of this before. And I was, I was on 
uh, I was on your show. Mm -hmm. uh, we recorded it last week. I don't know when the when these will air <laughs> compared to each other, but you were yeah. like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, Ikkyo Sujun, and I was like, I, 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 and he, like he's a Zen master, and he was like total party animal. He's he'd be you know one of the people you'd invite to dinner if you had like your historical dinner party, you know, dilemma. And I was like, oh my god, I don't know anything about this guy. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I've been kind of frantically trying to educate myself for the last week so I could sound smart when we have this <laughs> conversation. Well, the good thing is that hardly anybody knows about this guy, especially in, in Japan they do. But uh, but of course, you know, there's a little more popularity for the guy in US. Not so much. It's really uh, not just US, but like all English speaking countries. There's there's some material, but not a lot. So I had a blast just digging up pretty much everything there is about him in English and putting it together as a, as a storyline. And, and, you know, sometimes you do see a story that looks amazing when you read the short article on it and you dig deeper and there's nothing or the story is not quite as cool. Or the guy's just like a huge prick and you're yeah. like, oh, actually, I hate this guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, and more, the more yeah. I learn about him, the more I realize this guy's a monster. <laughs> yeah, you get really bummed out. Whereas with these instead, the more I, I dug into it, the, the happier I got. I was like, oh, this is better than anything I could have scraped that, you know. Oh, this is great. Yeah. And we've got some of his own writing. Some of his poems are translated into English mm -hmm. and they've got attitude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what's funny about him. He's uh, the, the poster boy for going against dogma, going against authority, going against uh, the established order of things. And yet, you know, like many people do, like you take like a Greek philosopher like Diogenes, he did similar stuff, mm -hmm. but he also suffered from the punk rock syndrome. You know, he's great when he's talking crap about everyone else. But when you look at what he does, there's not a whole lot that he creates in alternative that you say, oh, this is amazing. He's just an hilarious prankster. But you know, with TQ, you get his criticism of established authority. That's brilliant. But then you look at what he does in his life and you're like, oh, that's even better. So it's uh, there's two sides of the coin. You know, there's both the destruction of established order and the creation of something better. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well, I guess we should we should get into it. Um, this is going to be Ikkyo Sojun, and we are going to get into the story right after this break. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Okay, welcome back. Um, we are here with uh, Daniele from History on Fire. And uh, Daniele, you are going to tell us about Ikkyo Sojun. Yes, my favorite historical character out of the hundreds that I've studied, covered, and everything. This is probably my favorite tale. Uh, Ikkyo, his life is, is so odd that it looks like fiction. You know, he was born in 1394 under rather complicated circumstances. His father was the emperor of Japan. Now, granted, the emperor in the 1300s or 1400s doesn't really mean much because they were essentially a figurehead with minimal political power. You know, the shoguns would just keep them around, pat them on the head, say, give me your blessing and go back to partying and leave us alone. You know, so the emperor, it sounds super powerful. He wasn't, but he was still an important figurehead. You know, it nonetheless meant was he Was he a deity? Was he God? Was he considered godlike or? Yeah, I mean... A... Depend how in uh, in popular rhetoric, yes, people would give him credit. But the reality is that you know the the warlords did whatever they wanted, and yeah, they just yeah. asked for his blessings. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, more like the more like a weaker Roman emperor where they they yeah. want you to call them god, but they don't actually have any god power. <laughs> exactly. Ideally, you don't call them god during their lifetime, except for certain emperors. You know, but yeah. So anyway, so his dad is the emperor, which, okay, a figurehead, but still an important figurehead uh-huh. and not some random obscure farmer in the countryside or something. Yeah. This, however, does not play well for EQ because his mom was just a lady at court, uh, uh, wasn't the wife of the emperor. 
And she, she actually, they just made peace. There had been a civil war between the uh, northern side and the southern side. And she was from the southern side. The emperor had been tied to the northern side. They just made peace. But the notion of having a possible next in line to the throne who was tied to the southern side did not go well with a lot of people at court. And so there was a big push to get the, if not the kid outright killed, at least get him neutralized and out of the way. So his mom was casted out of the court. Uh, she gave birth to EQ. EQ didn't even get to spend that much time with her because possibly because she was either too poor to take care of him by that point or possibly because she was afraid that they would kill him as a mm -hmm. possible yeah. next in line to the throne. She put him in a Zen monastery when he was only five years old, basically giving everybody the message, look, leave this kid alone. He's just going to be a monk. He's not going to have anything to do with your politics. He's not recognized. Just let him be. Yeah. yeah. And you see some of that in the in Europe as well, where yeah. like kings, you know, if he's a potential threat to the throne, they'll they'll make him take holy orders. He'll become a monk or a priest or something because then he's he's not a threat to um, inherit the crown or the throne or anything. So, yeah. So I have a question in Japan at this time. If you give your kid to a Zen monastery, is the idea that it's kind of similar to the European situation where the kid might very well get raised and the expectation is that the kid will then take holy orders? Or is it just like education for a few years and then they get a new career or... Uh, it could go either way, but it seems uh -huh. that more often than not, it does go into these guys become monks. You know, it can be that is a temporary thing, but more often than not, it's uh, it's the real deal. It's this, this is what these guys will do. Which, of course, for EQ, it, it was not a choice. You know, he never decided, I want to study Zen Buddhism, I want to become a monk, I want to be part of this. It definitely beats the alternative, which was getting his head chopped off in a political conspiracy. So in that light, Zen mm -hmm. Buddhism didn't yeah. seem so bad monastery after all. Monastery or death. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, I guess monastery, as severe an environment as it would be, is still better than the alternative. There's one thing that we should probably say about Zen Buddhism. You know, if uh, in the West in particular, Zen Buddhism has this reputation for this very almost anarchist tradition within Buddhism, very, you know, you read guys like Alan Watts who have popularized uh, Zen Buddhism in the West a lot. And you get this impression of this very loose and free type of philosophy. Yeah, when you when I hear like being Zen, I picture like a guy on a surfboard. Yeah, know? right. It has this uh, happy hippie vibe to to it all. That is how it's popularized. Yeah, people use it to mean all sorts of things. Yeah, like oh, I spilled coffee on my shirt, but I was so Zen about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The reality is a bit different in the sense that uh, historically, I mean, the part that's not different is historically Zen is the result of the union between. Uh, Buddhism going into China and meeting Taoism, and the meeting of those two created what was called Chan Buddhism in China, and that became Zen Buddhism in Japan. So it's, it has a very Taoist overtones in its philosophy. But the reality is that living in the monasteries was anything but the free-flowing, you know, very rigid discipline, very strict meditation schedule, work hard, don't get to sleep much. You know, he's not this uh, surfer guy talking philosophy while smoking weed on the beach. It's not that at all. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 
it's considerably rougher environment. And EQ during his early years, he struggles with it because he's clearly, on one hand, he's clearly brilliant. Like all of his teachers remark on how smart this guy is and how even his grasp of Zen seems to be amazing and unparalleled. On the other hand, precisely because he actually likes Zen, he hates what the Zen establishment has become. And he regularly clashes with it on a regular basis uh, to the point of like the most famous of these early clashes is that uh, one thing that existed in Zen was this idea of the certificate of enlightenment. It's like the equivalent of your spiritual PhD, where you know you, a master has to recognize they are enlightened, so that then you are a master and can start your own monastery and stuff like that. And you have a piece of paper to prove it. Yes, exactly. And Nikhil, when they gave it to him, was like certificate of enlightenment. Are you kidding me? So he burned it. Which was like, <laughs> you know, these guys spend their lives trying to get it, and yeah. uh, it's given to him, and he's like, "Give me a break! This is a joke. What is it? This?" It's interesting though, because it's a thing that you know, you know, because we have this mentality of Zen being surfer dude smoking weed. Uh, you know, you don't think of Zen Buddhism having some of the same problems that we see in. Catholicism and some mm -hmm. of the Western religions and just kind of organized religion in general, where it's like, yeah, they're saying like, you know, Jesus said, be cool to everybody and help poor people and like be, you know, nice to your neighbors. And we've turned that in somehow to like, let's chop everybody's heads off who disagrees with us, you know, and, and then where we run into these like, um, once you kind of have these powerful church social structures mm -hmm. where, you know, you're learning all of this stuff, but the thing that you're practicing is the opposite of what you're learning. Exactly. And there's kind of a disconnect there. And you don't think of Zen Buddhism having that as well, but I, I imagine any any like hierarchy setup where people are gonna have power over other people kind of invites that a little bit. You're gonna have politics, you're gonna have bureaucracy, you're gonna have arbitrary stuff. Mm. Yep. So yeah, so Ikyu burned his certificate and what did he what did he do then? So they are, but they don't want to give up on him. They keep trying to kind of really mean despite his weird eccentric behavior and the fact that he's so bizarre. I mean, speaking of giving up stuff, you know, he gives up the, the certificate of enlightenment. On the other hand, at some point, his, uh, his father decides to see him and uh, sort of acknowledges him and all of that. They have a reunion. And in the meantime, Ikyu's half-brother, the other son of the emperor, had died. So in a way, there was, you know, realistically how desperate the, his father was to have somebody who was next in line. It's not a stretch to argue that if Ikyu had pushed for it, he could have probably gotten recognized and become the next emperor of Japan. But the reality is that Ikyu was as uninterested in becoming the emperor as he was in becoming the top priest in some temple. He just didn't give a crap. It seemed like uh, all very artificial, like whether it's a spiritual bureaucracy or plain figurehead for some powerful warlord. He was like, yeah, I don't really want to have any power part on any of this. So he, any, if anything, he suggested to his dad, why don't you pick uh, this so-and-so relative? He seemed like he would be a good fit for the job. And um, and didn't want to do that either. So again, he leaves you with 
what does this guy want? And meanwhile, like people and people around him are literally murdering each other for this a bit for this possibility or this the chance of being able to do this. <laughs> Precisely. So it's uh, he's pretty funny. There's um, one thing that happens at one point. That's one of my favorite TQ anecdotes of all. Is that in an effort to really mean they they give him a post overseeing this one smaller monastery saying oh maybe by giving him responsibility we'll get him back into the fold and he'll eventually get a little older he'll he'll mellow out and a few days go by and nobody can find him anymore. And so they are looking for him. He's like, he's the head of our <laughs> monastery. Where did he go? He was uh, he was a writer all his life. He always wrote a mm-hmm. ton of poems and stuff. And they find this poem that he left behind in his quarters that basically said, look, guys, let's be real. Nine days in this monastery and I'm losing my mind. So if anybody come looking for me, I'm either at the sake shop or I'm at the brothel. See you guys. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, but he wrote it as a poem. He didn't yes. just leave like a note on his door. He wrote it yeah. in poem form. Yeah. Probably beautiful literature in the original yeah. translation. Yeah. Did he calligraphy it himself? <laughs> yeah, he does all this yeah. very fancy, beautiful stuff. And and so you're left with this feeling of like, wait, what? And the funny thing is that for the rest of his life, those three elements. Because he does like Zen. So Zen Buddhism, women and alcohol are his three main passions in no particular order, by the way. They tend to be very much Mm -hmm. intermixed throughout his life. And beside the obviously hilarious aspect of it all, of like, oh, this sounds like a fun guy to party with. The thing that's funny about him is that there was actually a point even related to Zen Buddhism in the sense that one of the things that he's constantly going against is the the pretense of spirituality, this idea that spirituality is something separate from daily life. Whereas EQ is almost making a point by embracing and openly embracing, because, you know, a bunch of Zen Buddhist monks preach a certain doctrine and then they would go out drinking and go to prostitutes or something. That was hypocritical because they are saying one thing and doing another. EQ is completely upfront. It's like, what you see is what you get. He's not hiding it. He's not trying to. And his approach is trying to say, look, there is no spirituality like in some clouds of incense up a mountain. Spirituality is day-to-day life lived with full awareness, which is ultimately what Zen is. It's about this presence of being in the midst of everything. And, uh, And so he's not only not hiding, but flaunting all kinds of behaviors that more morals and Buddhists would condemn and see as antithetical to a spiritual path. To him, they are very much part of his spiritual path. Yeah, and that's something that I love, right? So, you know, we've got this kid, this illegitimate son of the emperor who turns out might actually have had like a solid claim on the throne and could have ascended Mm -hmm. if he had shown any interest in it. But instead he, you know, as a, as a child, he goes off to this Buddhist monastery where he's raised and he learns uh, Zen Buddhism and he learns it to a degree where he realizes nobody here is practicing what they're teaching. Mm -hmm. And this is all, they're all more kind of obsessed with the hierarchy and playing politics and wearing fancy clothes and having people give them certificates of enlightenment that they can frame for their offices. And this guy's like, well, this is all bullshit, right? Yep. This is, you guys are saying one thing, and you're trying to teach me one thing, 
but then the thing like what you were saying earlier about um, how Ikkyo uh, could create new stuff as well. One thing that's really awesome about him is that he can he just does whatever he wants. He goes to the brothels and he drinks and he parties and he wears, you know, he wears regular clothes to fancy things just to make people treat him nice because he is still actually like a high level Zen, Zen monk. And then when people call him out on it and are like, dude, what are you doing? He can like beat them in a philosophy argument on their own religion. Like, actually, I'm doing real Zen Buddhism. You guys are doing whatever. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. grab a surfboard and and a, and a and some weed and like, let's just hang out and be cool. This is what it's all about. <laughs> but the fact that he is able to kind of beat them at their own philosophy is just it's an added layer of uh, that I just love about him. Yeah, that's what's funny about the guy that he's uh, in many ways because he's the real thing when it comes to Zen. He inevitably clashes with the establishment. Like one thing he hates about the Zen establishment, well, many things he hates, but one of them is how corrupt they are. Because he say, you know, half of the time you guys are just pandering to some merchant with money, giving him certificates of, oh, you are a great Buddhist, this and that, where you're really selling out the religion for the sake of making money. And so again, he's like, these guys will represent the image of what Zen is supposed to be. And they have their shaved head and they are in their robes and live in the monastery and at least officially pretend to live by certain rules. Then they are... In his opinion, they are just selling out what Zen is and they don't really have it. Whereas real Zen is found outside of the monastery for him. And it's uh, it's like there's a line that's... Creating a hierarchy for it is like, you know, the opposite of exactly. what the Buddha was trying to accomplish or was trying to teach in the first place. And Nikyu likes to wink at this guy. You know, he likes to poke them and write things that, of course, there are multiple layers to it. He's saying it intentionally provocative. Like there's a line of his that say, don't hesitate, get laid. That's deep wisdom. Sitting around chanting sutras, <laughs> that's crap. <laughs> <laughs> and he's saying that to <laughs> Zen monks who spend their lives. It's, it's just hilarious, you know? He reminds me, and I think you talk about it a little in your podcast as well, but um, the patron saint of Bhutan is like that, mm -hmm. Drupal Kunli. He had a, same, a similar kind of deal. Uh, or he, I think he wrote somebody, he was also like a drinker and a partier and he liked getting laid and having drinks and partying and all this stuff. And some, uh, some higher level, uh, Buddhist monk complained to him and was like, how did they let you out of hell? And he was like, oh, I was actually on my way there, but the path was so clogged with corrupt priests that I couldn't get through. I had to come back. <laughs> I know. Trupakul <laughs> is another one exactly like that. Like I find uh, yeah. he's just just as good. He has very similar stories. The sources are a little thinner on his life, but, you know, it's just as he's very much reminds me of EQ big time. There's a line speaking of hell that I was just looking through my notes and I ran into that he goes, uh, with a young beauty, I'm engrossed in fervent love play. We sit here in the pavilion, a pleasure girl and his Zen monks, enraptured by hugs and kisses. I certainly don't feel as if I'm burning in hell. And, you know, he would write these things and send them out to the monks just to poke mm -hmm. them, just to yeah. get under their skin. And speaking of sources, because I'm curious, mm -hmm. we've got his poetry. What other sources do we have on him? 
There's uh, some of his disciples wrote biographies of his, and these were people who were with him, who knew him, so they were kind mm-hmm. of like a first-hand account of people who had lived with him, were around him. There are two or three of those biographies, so you can kind of fact-check them with each other, and, you know, of course, the things that they all report are more likely the true ones, and so on and so forth. There are a few references to him in, like, more official Zen record-keeping of the temples and so on. He dies, I think, in his late 80s or something. And, uh, you know, in part of the time that he lived in, there was the beginning of the Sengoku period in Japan is when the brutal civil war that will last for over a century begin during his lifetime. And so during the early wars, the much of Kyoto is burned to the ground. This main Zen temple where he had trained and had been part of is also destroyed. And they have nobody left to rebuild. They don't know what to do. And so they turn to Ikkyo because of his connection in the wider world of Japan. He's loved by so many people. He has hookups with anything from pirates to merchants to everybody. So they lend him all this massive amount of food and essentially rebuild the very temple he has spent his life criticizing. You know, he's made his life criticizing the Zen establishment. Yeah. And then, oddly enough, out of yeah. the biggest... I'm sure he loved that, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of yeah. the biggest temples in Kyoto <laughs> got to be rebuilt thanks to him. So there's this beautiful parable there that's absolutely hilarious. Well, so that's an interesting thing that we should yeah. talk about because um, because Ikkyo is, is he's an agent of chaos, right? Mm-hmm. He's going against everything that the temple is saying that he should be doing, and he's acting... acting out and he's being, you know, in some of the stories, he's being disrespectful to aristocrats and to the, the leadership of the Zen temples and things. And he's he's pissing off everybody in Japan. But rather than that coming back to him, people just love him. Like people, he's just kind of like, like he becomes a celebrity in his in his lifetime. I think there's something about a society that was so rigidly structured, seeing somebody who seemed so completely free so unencumbered by all the things that normal people struggle under. And, you know, because normal people want to climb ahead in the hierarchy. If you're a monk, become the more powerful monk. He doesn't give a crap. So you can, oh, maybe with political power, you can tempt him. He doesn't give a crap. He, he just doesn't care about the payoff that normal people chase around for their whole lives, you know? There's a joke I heard once about a guy and he goes to Mexico and he's hanging out on the beach in Mexico and there's a fisherman there. The Mexican fisherman is like, yeah, this is the life. You know, I catch fish and then I drink some wine and I go home to my wife. And the American is like, oh, well, you could get a couple more boats. And if you sold your fish here, then you could build a bigger empire. And then you could really kind of take over all of the fishing in this area and make a bunch of money. And the fisherman is like, why would I do that? And then the American's like, oh, because then you could, you know, invest some of that money and then you could retire and uh, and then you could you could just spend all day fishing and drinking wine and hanging out with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much where it's at. You know, that's very much where it's cute it's at. And in the process of doing that, he definitely makes some enemies in the Zen establishment. He also gets a lot of people who adore him. 
not only at a popular level, like on the street, so to speak, people love him. But I love, I think like one of the things I love about EQ is the fact that he, because so many people that you have seen and you have heard of who are more accepting of sexuality or embracing it within spiritual circles, or they are a little more irreverent or breaking the rules or doing stuff like that. You often, as you dig deeper, you find out that they do it in very self-serving ways where they are screwing over everyone else to get one. So bending the rules really meant I want to bend the rules because I want to get what I want. That's mm-hmm. not at all what you get with EQ, who's uh, people just love him. You never hear a story of him taking advantage of anybody or using this freedom of his to be the guy who gets what he wants and screws over someone else. So there's a, there's a certain level of a deep morality, but he doesn't preach it. He's not there saying, we need to be good. He's just a nice person who's just very free in his life. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. shows it. He says, like, you know, wouldn't we all just, I mean, wouldn't the world be better if we all just like got drunk and had sex right <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> look at this i'm just gonna do my thing and like actually you'd all be happier if you just did this instead of trying to stab each other in the back over political positions that nobody cares about <laughs> yeah and pieces of paper certifying that you have attained enlightenment yes, exactly and there is a funny twist to the story. So one of the things that happens is that in addition to him having a glorious time throughout his life, he has an enormous impact on Japanese cultural life for the next several centuries because he gathers, you know, he doesn't have a formal school. He doesn't have a temple. He just roams around, writes, preaches to whoever want to listen to him and stuff. But he gathers around him a whole collection of artists, uh, musicians, actors, uh, all sort of merchants, even people who had nothing to do with cultural life. But like, there's this very odd mix of people who start following him anytime, any chance they get, visiting any chance they get. So he has this mini court of people hanging around him. And most of them become incredibly influential people in Japanese cultural history, from a guy who revolutionized the way theater was done in Japan, to calligraphy master, to the guy who's going to become the main tea ceremony guy in Japan for the next generation. To So his ideas, while he's not trying to do that per se, they will end up having this tremendous impact that is felt through the ages afterwards because of all the people he influences in a direct kind of way. Because his uh, quote-unquote disciples, even though there's nothing formal about it, are these human beings who they themselves will have a big impact. He just had awesome parties and then yeah. all of the celebrities in Japan, all of the artists and everybody, it's like Andy uh-huh. Warhol or something, right? All these people yeah. just wanted to be near him and be part of the party. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, cultural movements got started. And um, yeah, and so he just kind of had this revolution in in Japan and and at a time that where people really needed it, because you, you did say, like, this is the warring mm-hmm. states period. Right. So there's a lot of there's the, the, the death and destruction and murder and mayhem is not central to this story, but it is happening in very close proximity to this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was a famine at some point, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, there was, because I mean, this is the period in, uh, this is where all 
it's the beginning of the war in states period. So it's the beginning, there's famine, there's civil war, there's, you know, the external context is brutal. He's not just there having a party yeah, and everything yeah. is easy. It's like sometime, you know, he has to flee where he lives in Kyoto, the place where he used to live gets burned down. It's like all these crazy things happen, but he somehow managed to rise above it. And then there's also another twist in his tale that when in his 70s, he falls after a life definitely dedicated to her women in the plural were very much uh, something that he enjoyed deeply. When in his 70s, he falls madly in love with this blind singer, this uh, woman, we don't know exactly how old she was. She's definitely a lot younger than him, but we don't know exactly how much. And, you know, initially, because there's such a huge age gap, he doesn't think anything of it. You know, he's, uh, they hang out together, they are friends, but there's nothing to it. Until eventually something sparks between them and then their romance become one of the most celebrated love stories in Japanese history. And he's actually, you know, when they paint his uh, portrait, which is kind of a big deal, you know, Zen masters often they had their portrait painted, which is how they will be known for the few, you know, there are no photographs, right? So your yeah. official portrait yeah. is pretty much the only way you're going to be known from there forward. He actually has her posing with him for the portrait, which is a huge no-no, you know, there is no Zen master who is with a woman in his official portrait. And he's super in love with her and they take the portrait together where she shows up with him and stuff and so it's uh there's this other layer of this very late life romance that become uh super celebrated in japanese culture which uh, you know if he wasn't cool enough already he just adds another level to it all wow that's amazing yeah yeah, yeah. and so he is a big slip because i i think i'd never heard of him before you mentioned him and you you had been exposed to him mm -hmm. uh, kind of later on in your career and and i don't know mm -hmm. pat if you've if you'd heard of him before this, but honestly, I had not heard of him before Daniele suggested, "Hey, let's talk about him for the episode." So, yeah, honestly, like yeah. I couldn't even remember the name of the I couldn't remember the name of the person, and so you had said, "Like, oh, we're going to talk about this this monk who was mm -hmm. uh, crazy," and so for whatever reason, because I had been listening to your Benvenuto Uccellini oh, yeah. episode at the time. I went to Pat and I was like, oh, we're going to do a, a monk. He's like a, a hard drinking, like hard partying. Uh, you think it, I, I want to say like like it, uh, Renaissance yeah. Italy. Yeah. And I started you, you immediately listing named, like, Italian names. Crazy sex scenes from Renaissance which, Italy. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't. Oh, no, 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 not actually. Um, uh, but I was trying to think like who might be at least somewhat overlapping with the description and not all of them were crazy sex fiends. One of them was Athanasius Kircher, who was cool and nerdy in his own right, but to my knowledge, was not known as being a sex fiend. And also, sex fiend is... I feel like sex fiend is a little bit derogatory. <laughs> I feel like this guy just... Just he loves pleasure. He loves sharing pleasure and being in the yep. moment. And, you know, so <laughs> I yeah. think fiend impri implies criminality, too. That's probably the, the total wrong word to use. But <laughs> well, or fiend or that you're not in control of it. And he's it seems to me that he's managing anyway. But but to your point, Ben, um, this guy, IQ, is not well known in America. And so, Ben, you and I had to do a little bit of work to yeah. get to know and him. And I think that's yeah. what's interesting sometimes that, you know, so many of, uh, when we open any history book, every other story is uh, the Borgias and Alexander the Great and Caesar. And, you know, it's always 
political figures usually involved in major wars and scheming and murders and that's you know so much of what we what passes as history is the history of gangsters on a large scale you know it's like it's nice to be reminded that there are fun human beings engaging human beings enjoyable human beings who can be remembered for something other than killing a whole bunch of people or scheming to get power you know it's a healthy reminder that this yeah. stuff is there it's just not what so many of our history books have focused on well it's something that like we talked about on your show and that we uh that you talked about in kind of the introduction to um to your series on EQ, which is that um at least in the U.S., weirdly, like I, I do these books for uh, for school kids, and I get censored on kissing stuff all the time. My editor's like, I don't think we can put that in there. But the violence, that's fine. Nobody cares, right? You, you know. And it's kind of interesting how we have this total complacency with extreme violence and gore, but anything sexual immediately starts sending off alarm bells everywhere. It's interesting because this guy, Ikkyo, he, you know, he was the kind of more like what we should all be trying to be yeah. like, right? We should be trying to be more like Ikkyo and less like mm, Tokugawa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you look at exactly the people who are famous in that period of Japanese history, they are mostly monsters, you know, Oda Nobunaga or Tokugawa or Hideyoshi, you know, these guys are serious, brutal gangsters who do horrible things, even to their own families in their quest to gain power. Here you have EQ, doesn't hurt a fly, is having a blast, makes everybody around him happy other than the overstuffed uh, Zen guys, and uh, and has a huge positive impact on a ton of people's life, and in the process, he enjoys his life. He's no martyr or suffering. He just managed to find a good way to live life. Did, did his, um, like, counterculture uh, stuff ever come back to him. I remember, you know, I remember Voltaire once wrote, he was famously lampooning all of the aristocracy of France and stuff, but he once wrote that he, uh, he had bought a house that was really close to the border of Italy so that if the French army ever did come for him, he could run out his back door and be in Italy <laughs> and out of their jurisdiction. <laughs> but did anything ever like, like that ever happen with Ikio? No run-ins with the famous people that he wronged and they felt the need to draw a samurai sword on him or something? No, he got caught in the middle of the civil war. So at some point he had to flee the city and where he was staying got all burned down and he lost so much stuff, but not in a personal way. Like nobody was coming after him personally. And I think that's what's funny that even people who he clashed with, somehow they couldn't help to like him anyway. You know, there was an element of like, yeah. oh, why do you have to be such a pain in the ass? But you're really funny and there's something endearing about you, you know? <laughs> yeah, because when somebody <laughs> acts out like that, you know, and just is like, I'm just going to be me. I'm not going to do this yeah. thing that you want me to do. I'm going to do my own thing. There's always that kind of like, oh, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, but he yeah, never yeah. did, nope. which is just amazing. No, nope. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's where... I'm actually going to read you something. I found it in my notes. This is how I close my series uh-huh. on him because it underscores another point that to me is important in his story. Because as much as I hear 
I love all these jokes and I love his uh, wild drinking and sex stories. And uh, oh, by the way, I should mention one more of those before I go into the point I was trying to make. When he's really old and he's close to death, at one point he has a discussion with some of his disciples and he says, I know that after I die, some of you are just going to spend your time partying with women. And some of you are going to turn to the mountains to meditate alone. And he said, both types of Zen are fine with me. Those are good paths, both of those. However, if you become a professional cleric and start babbling about Zen as the way, then you are my enemy. And again, I thought it was hilarious because to him, it's like <laughs> meditation in the mountains and sexual carousal. It's all, those are two good Zen paths. They both work. And so I had to throw that in because it's another beautiful little anecdote about him. But like the thing that also I... I really cherish about his story is his complete unwillingness to, maybe there's a, you know what, I'm just going to read you this part because he really captured this point about him trying to Mm -hmm. find happiness, real happiness in the midst of a really heavy context because it's not having everything easy or handed to him. So I'll read you this quick part. It said, Uh, Sickness, heartbreak, the inevitable decline of old age, failure and death stoke every one of us. We live in a universe in which everything we love gets to be taken away from us sooner or later. Our very existential conditions dictate that every single human will deal with heavy suffering. Ikki was no stranger to life's harsh side. He was disowned by his father before he was even born, was separated from his mother by the time he was five, lived through periods of famine, floods, and civil war, and so 90% of his hometown burned to the ground, plus thousands of people dying all around him. And yet, in what is possibly my favorite line ever written, he wrote, throw me into hell, and I'll find a way to enjoy it. Oh, that's you great. Know, Eric is not promoting, you know, some kind of delusional form of positive thinking. He's not willfully blind about how brutal life can be. He he knows the hell, whether psychological or the hell of horrible material conditions, is never far away and can knock on the door at any minute. So in that sense, almost hell is inescapable. There's no denying it. And yeah, what he's doing is denying that hell can have power over his consciousness as much as he can possibly manage. You know, he, they said of him, they say, joy in the midst of suffering is the mark of EQ school because he chose this playfulness as a way to keep finding beauty is an art, you know, and I bow to anyone who can master it and, you know, because to me, that's what the real spiritual depth is about, is that ability to find joy when life doesn't really give you that much, that many reasons for it. And in that regard, I can't think of anybody better than EQ to teach this, because his whole life was about this stuff. And so that's why, in addition to the obvious, hilarious element of it all and how much he makes me laugh and how funny he is, I also find him inspirational on that level. Yeah. And what a great, what a great message too, right? Of, you know, life is hard, mm-hmm. but you know, it is what you make of it and you can try to find the positive and have a good time with it, you know? And, and it's a kind of goes to the point we were saying earlier where we don't have to read that in high school, which is when you really need it. We're yeah. reading Machiavelli instead, yeah. which is the opposite of what yeah. we need <laughs> Yeah, as a society and as individuals. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Well, Danielle, uh, thank you so much for for doing this. I know that, like, you know, uh, for you taking your time out to come here and tell this story for us. And it's fun. We really appreciate it. Um, do we have any kind of final thoughts on on Ikio before we before we wrap this up? I don't know. I think throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy. This is as good as a one-liner I can ever think of. You know, that's. Uh, yeah, I don't even know how it's we great. Would, uh, it's great. Yeah. I'm gonna try. Yeah. I'm trying to make that my life's philosophy in the face of because you know the reality is we all run into terrible things happening in our life. There's no avoiding it. We all will deal with. We have dealt with. Yeah. We will deal with it. But having that attitude as much as humanly possible definitely helps. Yeah, it can always be worse, right? It yeah. can always be, it can always yes. be better, and it can always be worse. Yeah. yeah. Daily, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we can find your podcasts on History on Fire. Yep. Yeah. So about EQ, I did uh, two episodes. They are two hours long each. So I dive real deep into that story. But then you know, like what I do mm -hmm. every month is pick a story do as much of a deep dive as I can into telling either the life of somebody or one event or something that I find, uh, you know, in that regard, I very much, you guys have the same taste as I do. I like these larger than life tales that make you go, oh, did that really happen? No way. Did somebody, because <laughs> that's the fun of it all, you know? So that's what I try to do as well in, uh, uh, in uh, just narrative form and just research a bunch and then get to tell the story. Yeah, so History on Fire is the podcast. I definitely recommend that everybody go check out the, um, all of it, but especially the the what we were just talking about because you do get you do deep dive into uh -huh. some really good stories that uh that you know we we don't have we won't have the time to get to here but they're amazing and you did a great job with the research and organization and everything and and i'm on the i'm on there as well so if you guys want to come and check out the episode that i did with uh with danielle it's available um there as well so that was fun that was a lot yeah we had a blast that one is actually gonna be i'm gonna put it in two places i'm gonna put that on uh, the other podcast that i have the drunken taoist okay. and then i'm also gonna put it on uh, patreon for patreon listeners who are hardcore history on fire listeners will also get it that nice. way excellent so, is there anywhere else we can find you it's um uh, history on fire and drunken taoist yeah that's yeah cool those are the ones all right well thank you so much for being on here thank you so much for having me it was a blast thank you thank you daniele stay badass Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. Executive producers are Andrew Jacobs, me, Pat Larish, and my co-host, Ben Thompson. Writing is by me and Ben. Story editing is by Ian Jacobs, Brandon Fibbs. Mixing and music and sound design is by Jude Brewer. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeart. Badass of the Week is based on the website badassoftheweek.com, where you can read all sorts of stories about other badasses. If you want to reach out with questions, ideas, you can email us at badasspodcast at badassoftheweek.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe, follow, listen, and tell your friends and your enemies if you want, as we'll be back next week with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.